Good evening. Welcome. It's Eric Erickson here. News 95.5 AM 750 WSB. Nine after the hour. I got to start with a story that I thought was an urban legend. I thought it was an internet meme. I didn't think it was real. It is apparently real. Uh, it comes from a website I've never heard of, which was one of the, the reasons I was concerned here. Pluralist, which calls itself um, a, a shamelessly multi-partisan news outlet. And apparently this was skipped over because it actually happened in July. And word has only gotten out now. A millennial couple biking near ISIS territory to prove humans are kind has been killed. Jay Austin and Lauren uh, Geigen were 29. They quit their jobs in Washington. Austin, uh, the site says, was a vegan who worked for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Uh, Geigen was a vegetarian who worked for Georgetown University Admissions Office decided to go around the world together on their bike. Uh, they said too many thunderstorms went unnoticed, too many gentle breezes unnoticed. So they decided to bike the world. And they started, of course, a joint blog and an Instagram account. Uh, as the New York Times said, they, they shared their open-heartedness they wanted to embody in the acts of kindness reciprocated by strangers around the world. Uh, yep, so here it is, the, the story in the New York Times as well. So they... On day 319 of their journey, a Kazakh man stopped his truck, said hello, and handed them ice cream bars. They had their pictures taken. Uh, day 369, they were in Tajikistan with other tourists, and a carload of, man, of men who were ISIS terrorists ran them over, got out, and stabbed them to death. Um, yeah. So they, they, they wanted to tour the world and proved that the world wasn't bad and ISIS was overstated. The the case against ISIS was overstated and whatnot. Uh, and they were just good, good, happy, carefree millennials who wanted to bike the world, and they have been killed in Tajikistan by terrorists. Yeah, that's not an urban legend, folks. It actually, this is a real story. It actually happened. It's in the New York Times now as well. Other outlets reporting it. I, I have held off on the story thinking this, there's no way I mean, the, the, the headline of the story literally is millennial couple bikes near ISIS territory to prove humans are kind and gets killed. Evil is a make-believe concept we've invented to deal with the complexities of fellow humans is what these two declared on their bike trip. Well, okay. So we need to talk about the press freedom editorials because I think it was a terrible idea. And I've said it was a terrible idea, and it's playing out exactly as I predicted. It would play out more than 300 newspapers ultimately. First it was 70, then it was 100, then it was 200. Uh, it wound up being about 300 newspapers around the country. Uh, a lot of them small newspapers ran editorials decrying President Trump's attacks on the supposedly free press. Now, I, I just want to point out the obvious thing here that even the president pointed out on Twitter that if we didn't have, if we were a totalitarian authoritarian state, as many of these newspapers claim, they couldn't get together and write editorials claiming that the president's attacks are bad for the free press. We have a free press, which is why they could do this, which is kind of like, like common sense 101, but they apparently failed. I got to tell you, there's just, it strikes me as just unbelievable arrogance on the part of newspapers around the country coordinating in this way. 
because it plays perfectly into the hands of the president. I, I'm already seeing. I'm. I. I was joking this morning, but I. I it's totally real. The people who are coming up saying, who are on social media, on email, on Facebook, writing me, posting comments at theresurgent.com, all saying, look, this is the, the reporters are colluding. They're upset with the president colluding with Russia. They're colluding to get rid of the president. They're colluding to take out the president. We had apparently had phone calls to Mark Aram show last night on this effect that, uh, that, that there, these reporters are colluding. First of all, you know, collusion per se is not a crime. But secondly, I wouldn't say they're colluding. I would say they're coordinating more precise term there, they are coordinating together to attack the president, which is what the president is talking about. And you know, when the president says the press is the enemy of the people, he's not meaning Americans generally. This is yet again, another example of where, as Selena Zito pointed out at the resurgent conference, she coined the phrase that Trump supporters take him seriously, not literally reporters take him literally, not seriously. When the president says the press is the enemy of the people, what he means is that the press is, by and large, the enemy of his supporters. Their worldview is aligned with the left. The way they cover stories is aligned with the left. The way they view stories is aligned with the left. The way they pick good guys and bad guys is aligned with the left. More and more journalists, younger journalists in particular, the 20 and 30-something journalists, believe that they are becoming journalists to speak truth to power, to advocate for causes. They're not becoming tellers of facts so that people can make up their minds. They're becoming agenda-driven activists who are using the First Amendment and their access to TV and newspapers to shape people's opinions. Not by giving them facts necessary to make up their own mind, but by making up people's minds for them by shaping stories in a preconceived direction. And the fact that the media doesn't understand this, doesn't want to understand this, couldn't care less about this, gets defensive when you point it out, shows that they're not the enemy of the American people, they're their own worst enemy. Dianne Feinstein, senator from California, the ranking member of the Intelligence Committee, her driver, a staffer of hers for a decade, has been arrested because he's a spy for China. It took the New York Times and the Washington Post and other major outlets that went in on this free speech thing today, free press thing, took him more than a week and a half to report it after the story had originally broken in the San Francisco Chronicle, which didn't participate in today's editorials. Did you know that three members of Congress have received credible death threats and two people have been arrested in the past two weeks? The media spent more time focusing on Jim Acosta and the White House and the president's attacks on the press in the last two weeks than they did any of these stories. And of the stories that they have regularly talked about, they've gotten so many of them wrong. How many stories about the president have had to be retracted from CNN, from CBS, from ABC, NBC, MSNBC? So many of these stories have had to be retracted. They would rather be first than accurate. They would rather attack the president and play to left-wing sympathies. And by the way, it's all been very good for the press. These attacks on the press by the president and, and their supposed standing up to him in, in coordinated terms, this is all good for business for them. This is all kabuki theater for them. I mean, the New York Times had a, a subscriptions off the charts after the election from liberals who were subscribing because of their coverage of the president. They had 300,000 new digital subscribers in the first quarter of 2017. And in campaign 2016, the media gave the president over $5 billion, with a B, billion dollars in free coverage. Yes, more than 
all the free coverage of all the other candidates combined. President Trump, they've media cast a, a media tracking firm quantified in in value how much free advertising the president got through nonstop media coverage. Five point eight billion with the B dollars in free airtime. They have a symbiotic relationship. Remember in campaign 2016, even before the president was the Republican nominee, CNN would cover the landing of his airplane as if it was Air Force One landing. They would. They fed off each other. They benefited from each other, and they benefit now from keeping this controversy alive. And the president gets it, and the media doesn't seem to get it. They're certainly playing into it. They see the bottom line improving because of the president, but they don't understand he's playing them for his base. And the more they do this sort of thing, the more the president's base doesn't believe the media. There are so many stories out there that they could be covering that they refuse to cover because they're obsessed with covering the president. So, of course, he's going to push back. I mean, and you know what? I'm somebody who I'm not hugely a fan of the president's. But even I recognize that the media, its coverage of the president is hugely biased and oftentimes deeply unfair to him. And so often they have to retract it. It is no wonder that the president is able to go out there on the campaign trail and call these people the enemy of the people. And he means his people, not the American people. And his people understand what he's talking about. It's the press that doesn't. And the arrogance of coordinating these editorials is ridiculous. All it does is it gives the president more ammunition and, by the way, in doing so, reminds the American public that the popularity of the media, they are less popular than the roll of toilet paper that gets stuck on your shoe when you walk into a public bathroom. That's how popular the American media is right now. The press does not have any credibility to stand on because they have abused it all through partisan antics over the last number of years and the cheerleading for Barack Obama, the attacks on Donald Trump. I mean, the fact that they're doing this shows just how out to lunch these people are. It's 27 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk to the phones we go. Charlie from Duluth, welcome. Hi, Eric. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I totally agree with you. That's unconscionable about the uh, Chinese spy. Um, but to help illuminate that, you know, less than 50, well, 75 miles from here over in Alabama, a 13-year-old girl was beheaded by an illegal alien. And we didn't hear anything about it here in Atlanta. No, I, I, I don't recall that. You know, by the way, that reminds me, there is a story out today, and I, it hasn't been on any major sites. I only saw it on the Daily Caller that a an ISIS member who claimed refugee status in California has been arrested for murder. Yeah, so. Yep, you're right. I mean, listen, the bias in the media I have learned, and thanks very much, Charlie, for the phone call. The bias in the media I have learned is not necessarily on um, what they cover, but what they don't cover. And when they cover things, how they cover it. I mean, take the story of Jack Phillips. So I want to get into this a little bit. Jack Phillips, you know, the baker in Colorado who went to the Supreme Court, won his case for the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, he's having to go back to court because they're after him again. And the media, the headlines of the story, you would think that that Jack had done something terribly wrong. And that's not true. He's been targeted. And they're leaving out some really key facts in the case when they report the story. The Washington Post did it today, completely distorting the facts of the case. We'll get into that and so much more when we come back.
It is 39 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Um, the phone number here, 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Real quick, there's a state um, story that we need to talk about. And kudos to the Georgia Supreme Court for getting this right, I think. And uh, right to the extent that it's not drawing a ton of outrage, even from immigration activists, the state Supreme Court has agreed with Brian Kemp, the Secretary of State, uh, that a Democratic candidate cannot be on the ballot in November. Uh, Maria Palacios is the candidate, and I apologize if I'm butchering her name. She's a Democrat from Gainesville. She was taken off the ballot in May by Brian Kemp um, because of the constitutional requirement that she be a citizen of the state for two years. Now, she has lived in the state of Georgia for a number of years. The state constitution only says that a member of the state house has to be a U.S. citizen at the time of the election. But the constitution also says that you have to be a citizen of the state for two years. So as a citizen of the United States for a year and a citizen of the state for two years. And her attorney's claim is that she has lived in Georgia for more than two years. She became a U.S. citizen and will have has become a U.S. citizen. So it should matter. And unanimously, the state Supreme Court has said, being a state citizen and a citizen of the United States are not the same thing. We're a federal republic. While you have to be a U.S. citizen uh, by the time of the election, you have to be a Georgia citizen for at least two years. And even though you have lived in Georgia for more than two years, you only just became a U.S. citizen, which means you cannot have become a Georgia citizen for two years. And and stuff like that matters. We often forget that we are a, a federal republic where you actually have two different governments. You have a state government and a federal government. You can, for example, commit a crime in Georgia and be charged with the crime and found guilty of the crime in Georgia and then charged with the crime and found guilty of the crime by the federal government because they're two separate legal systems. They are two separate constitutional systems. They are two separate governmental systems. So even though the Constitution says you only have to be a citizen of the United States by the time you're elected, the Georgia Constitution says you got to be a citizen of Georgia for two years before the election, and she didn't qualify. So she has been taken off. That that renders one seat in the state house safe. Uh, she's running House District 26. Uh, Matt Dubnik is guaranteed to be back in the legislature because now there's nobody running against him. Fascinating case. The Supreme Court of Georgia, I think, got that right unanimously. Okay. It, it, by the way, I, I do want to say, because I just saw somebody on Twitter um, while Doug was checking traffic, ask, I, I don't plan on spending a lot of time on the John Brennan stuff because I, I don't think it matters. I don't think it's big news, and I realize it's getting blown up by the media today. There's so much other stuff that I think is big news, uh, including the state of play for the House representatives. There's some new data out that bodes well for Democrats that Republicans need to know about, and the the state of play with Brett Kavanaugh. There's, there's a lot of other stuff out there today. I also want to mention very briefly Jack Phillips. Uh, I think the Washington Post, for example, has done really poorly in covering this today, making it sound like uh, Jack Phillips has done something wrong, Claiming persecution, Jack Phillips sues Colorado. That's how the Washington Post is covering this. Let me give you the facts of the case. Uh, A man in Colorado 
has uh, a man or I, 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 I can't keep it straight. I think it's a man who thinks he's a woman now. No, a woman who thinks he's, she's a man now. In any event, call Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips is the baker, went to the Supreme Court. He didn't want to bake the cake for the wedding, told the gay couple he would give them anything in the store, but he wouldn't do a wedding cake. He'd do anything for their wedding, but he wouldn't do the wedding cake. And so they sued him. He was targeted. Let's not forget this. This was an, an act where that he was specifically targeted to bake this cake by an activist group. And it went to the Supreme Court. He was compared to a Nazi by the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. All sorts of terrible things um, called him. Uh, the Civil Rights Commission did. So on the day that the Supreme Court agreed to take Jack Phillips' case, very big news in Colorado, a transgendered person called and demanded that he make a cake to celebrate um, his transgenderism. It would be blue icing with a pink interior. The same activist, and this is where the, most of the news media has ignored, the same activist had a history with Jack Phillips calling and asking for absurd requests that he would deny. At one point, they asked Jack Phillips to make a cake that involved adult toys. There was a cake th this person wanted with Satan playing with adult toys. There was a cake uh, dedicated to Satan. All of these things this person wanted, and Jack Phillips said no, and they finally got him. I, and again, I, I don't know if it's a, I, I think it's a man who thinks he's a woman. I think. In any event, someone who's not particularly stable, uh, clearly from all the requests and everything else. And uh, so now the Colorado Civil Rights Commission has attacked him again and threatened to shut him down again. And so he's having to sue. What's so crazy about this is that the Supreme Court found that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission dealt with Jack Phillips with unmitigated and unjustified hostility and a lack of respect for his faith. They took this action against him, punishing him, less than 30 days after the United States Supreme Court released its opinion determining that they had treated him terribly. Less than 30 days after the Supreme Court smacked down the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, they decided to punish him again. That's ridiculous. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, here it is. Uh, yeah, Autumn Scardina. Autumn Scardina, who is a man who now identifies as a woman, who also wanted um, sexually explicit messages on cakes and satanic symbols on cakes, uh, and declined to do all of that, including one depicting Satan licking a functional nine-inch, <clears throat> use your imagination. Yes, uh, this person the Colorado Civil Rights Commission has sided with, despite sustained harassment of Jack Phillips, and now he's got to go to court again. And if you read the major press reports, Jack Phillips is the bad guy here. It is 56 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. The website Shopify has been a free speech absolutist for a very long time, but now their CEO has decided guns are bad. So they've altered their terms of service and are getting rid of those who sell things related to guns, which we're going to see more and more. This is uh, continually and aggressively uh, left-wing organizational stuff. Uh, you know, for example, there have been a, a number of stories in the last couple of days about the the Parkland effect 
the high school students who are uh, sustained activism, trying to get people elected to do gun control and whatnot. Uh, I have a hard time believing that they're going to be that effective, but there is a strong PR push. I, I do think it's very interesting. There was an article in the Washington Times earlier today, or Washington Examiner rather, about a lot of the Parkland kids are really working at the local level to change their school board and local elected officials who they think badly screwed up, but some of the most aggressive anti-gun activists down there aren't helping them. Uh, they've decided to focus on national politics, which is kind of unfortunate. When we come back to the state of play in the House, there's new data. It is 8 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson. This is Atlanta's Evening News. The phone number 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. There are, there's rain inside the perimeter, and over 85 and 285 near Tucker, there's some rain. Lawrenceville has some rain. Otherwise, we're clear in the area. Uh, more rain will be coming in tomorrow. Most of it now is in the mid-state, uh, and a line running basically from... LaGrange to Forsyth over towards uh, yeah, to Sandersville. Everything around us, though, largely okay, except that bit inside the perimeter. We got some headlines we need to talk about, including the state of play for the House of Representatives. I, I'm actually, so I, I'm noticing a trend here. Friends of mine who live in heavily Republican areas are convinced the Democrats are not going to take the House. Friends of mine who live in Democratic areas are convinced the Democrats are going to take the House. Friends of mine who live in swing districts aren't sure. And that, I think, is the way it should be. What does the data actually say? Um, there are a number of, of really good resources out there that you can read. Uh, David Byler at the, uh, the Weekly Standard has become one of my new favorites. He and, and five the, the folks at 538 do a very good job. Uh, David is just a data guy. Look at the data. Tell me what the data says. Uh, what, what, what's the data list as what's going to happen? And to some degree, although the 538 guys have some real biases that lean to the left, they've been very good to the extent of, of Nate Silver getting attacked by progressives in 2016 for daring to say Donald Trump had a real shot at getting elected. They were very upset with him, and yet he was right. Right now, according to 538, the Democrats have a 74.7% chance of winning control of the House. Republicans have a 25.3% chance of keeping the House. Now, why? Well, there are a number of seats around the country that look like they are going to flip. Uh, some are going to flip in favor of the Republicans. For example, Michigan's 8th Congressional District. Right now, it's held by a Democrat. But Pete Stauber, the Republican up there, has a very good shot at flipping the seat in Michigan's 8th. But then there are seats like, for example, um, let's see, the yeah, Dana Rohrbacher in California's 48th district. Dana Rohrbacher's held that seat for a very long time, but uh, Harley Rauda, the Democrat, has a 2-3 and three shot at getting it. And this is all based on the polling. Now, there have been a lot of polls that go back and forth. Some show that the Republicans are rebounding on the generic ballot. Some showing the Democrats. Depends on where you look. What The reason that I like this guy at the Weekly Standard, David Byler, I, I don't know him, 
but he compiles every single one of the generic ballot polls since the inauguration. Every single one of them he's compiled. And he plots them on a map. Um, where they are based on distance from the inauguration and what they show. And you can really see the cluster of polls and the consistency in the polling. There are absolutely some outliers out there. And what he does is he tries his very best to bring some sort of, of semblance of symmetry to the polling by drawing some lines. Now, you can take, as he notes, you can take a, just the flat-out average or you can kind of you can use a mathematical formula to sweep it and show trends. So what do the trends show? Yes, there are some polls out there that shows the Democrats and the Republicans tied in the generic ballot. There are even a couple of polls out there that show that the Republicans are now ahead on the generic ballot. But if you look at his his um, graphic that he's got up there, and, his, and I put this out on Twitter just a few minutes ago at E.W. Erickson, it has actually been very, very consistently uh, showing a Democratic bias of about plus 7%. Now, that's to be expected because these polls of registered voters, they tend to lean a little bit to the Democrats anyway. But this, there's also a lot of consistency. And you wouldn't get that consistency if you listen to the talking heads on TV or the day-to-day -day obsession about the generic ballot. I mean, just go see for yourself. You, you don't have to believe me. You don't have to believe him. Just look at the data. He's got literally every generic ballot poll out there since Election Day on this graph. And you can see them all plotted out there, little bitty dots, uh, hundreds of them. And you can see where they stack up yourselves to see. Now, how is that relevant? Well, it's relevant here in Georgia for a couple of races. By the way, if you're just tuning in, I just saw somebody ask me on Twitter, yeah, I'm, I've been sick and allergies and everything else. So is my, my voice is coming and going nonetheless. So in Georgia, uh, the Democrats have been playing up two significant races. They've been playing up the, the Rob Woodall race, Georgia 7, and the Karen Handel race. Uh, Georgia 6. These are right next to each other. Woodall in particular. Woodall in particular because Gwinnett County has seen a massive demographic change in the last number of years. And it is trending Democrat. And Carolyn Bordeaux is a pretty good Democratic candidate. Um, but according to 538, when they look at all of the polling, Woodall is favored to win. This is a definite lean Republican seat. He's got a 52% chance of, of winning the seat. What about Karen Handel? I mean, if you listen to the, the Democrats, they say Karen Handel is a target. Uh, Lucy McBath, the Democratic candidate there, the Democrats would have you believe is a very strong candidate. According to 538, uh, this is a solidly Republican seat. The, Karen Handel has a 57.4% chance of winning the seat. In fact, the, the only seat that is considered lean R instead of solid R is Woodall's and is still a 52.1% chance of winning it. So the problem is not going to be Georgia. The problem is going to be some other states out there uh, and, and the way things go. I, I've mentioned before that the majority of seats lost by Republicans in 2006 and the majority of seats lost by Democrats in 2010 weren't even on the radar for losses until after Labor Day. They weren't on anybody's, they weren't on anybody's radar. So things could still change. Now, you will note something I'm not talking about. The Senate. The Senate less and less appears to be in play for the Democrats. Why? Well, there's been a massive turnout surge for Democrats nationwide.
a massive surge for Democrats nationwide. Uh, overall, Democrats have turned out 500% of what they turned out for primaries in 2016. 500%. Republicans have turned out at 300%. Now, there are some differences there. Uh, some of these were are not contested races. Some of them were contested races. They certainly shape things. But by and large, the trend lines have been consistent through the Virginia elections last year, all the special elections this year. Democrats are more mobilized, and that is how it always is in midterm elections. But Democrats tend to be clustered together in Democratic areas. Republicans are a little more spread out. Republicans have definitely Republican areas, but, you know, you do have some swing districts there where liberals have not completely been able to isolate themselves in liberal enclaves. They, they, some of them do live in suburban areas, like we're seeing happening in Gwinnett County. And those are the seats that are in play. And those will shape House districts. But by and large, people have been redistricted into districts that reflect party composition. Democratic districts tend to be very safe. Republican districts tend to be very safe. There are very few swing districts. At the state level, though, for the Senate, a lot of the seats that are in play have been trending to the Republicans. North Dakota, Indiana, Florida, these are all states. Listen, the Republicans are probably going to lose Nevada, Dean Heller's seat. They may actually lose Arizona, which is a very Republican state, but the Republicans have played their hands very badly in Arizona, and they may very well lose Arizona and lose Jeff Lake's seat. But it looks like they're going to pick up Florida, and it looks like they're going to pick up Indiana, and it looks like they're going to pick up North Dakota, and they may very well pick up West Virginia. That will give the Republicans an increase in the Senate. Notice how all of the conversation out there right now about the state of play for Congress is all about the House representatives. Largely, the major pundits out there, the the the, stra the statisticians, the strategists, the Democratic strategists, the Republican pundits and strategists, all of them are looking at the Senate saying, you know what? The Democrats are going to have to run the board on the Senate, and it's not looking good for them. Bill Nelson in Florida in particular has been a steady hand for the Democrats. He's been the incumbent there. He's been popular there, but he's running a terrible campaign against Rick Scott. Joe Donnelly in Indiana is running a tone-deaf campaign in a state where the sitting vice president was governor. You got Heidi Heitzkamp on defense in North Dakota against a strong Republican. These are seats Republicans could pick up. So even if the Republicans lose the House, they're not going to lose the Senate. And that's going to complicate things for Democrats and potentially cause the Democratic primary in 2020 to go far left and hand Donald Trump re-election. Why? Well, stick around. It is 26 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750. 1-800-WSB-TALK. So I've been sick the last couple of days. I wasn't on yesterday. I'm back today. And when I tend to get sick and just stay in bed, I don't shave. And so I had to shave this afternoon. And I pulled out my handy-dandy Harry's razor. It gives me just as good a shave, if not better, than the name brand big boy blade, super expensive blade you've used in the past. I don't understand now. I, I've been a Harry's customer for several years. I don't understand why people continue to buy the super expensive blades that are no better than and potentially are inferior to Harry's. 
I mean, here he's bought a German factory where they grind steel themselves and make the blades. They're so good that Target and Walmart have taken this online company and started putting their products in their stores. I highly recommend Harry's, and I got a great deal for you as well. Right now, for my listeners, new customers get $5 off a shave set with Harry's with code Erickson at harrys.com. That means you get a starter set. It comes with a five-blade razor, a weighted handle, foaming shave gel, and travel cover for just three bucks plus free shipping when you use my last name, Erickson, as your code at harrys.com. You join millions of guys, myself included, who have already switched. You go to harrys.com today, use code Erickson at checkout, and you claim your offer, and you more you better not be disappointed because I like Harry's and I don't use the five blade razor. I use the three blade because I get razor burn really easy. I have sensitive skin. Nonetheless, I really like Harry's. You will too. Y'all, so I do think the Democrats are going to take back the House. Uh, it's just the product of a midterm election where Democrats nationally are much more fired up than Republicans. You have a lot of Republicans who are starting to get fired up. I do not think the Democrats will take the House back in a massive wave. I think what we're going to see is where the wave for Democrats is or in pre-existing Democratic areas. But there are some Republicans, Will Hurd in Texas being an example, uh, some others who are in areas where Democrats have won, where Hillary Clinton won. Uh, and I think the Republicans are going to lose some of these seats. Will Hurd may actually be safe, ironically because he's done a very, very good job on the campaign trail of uh, making himself be a sort of maverick, maverick, moderate, independent Republican, not a big Trump fan. The president gets it and has uh, given grace to Hurd on this, so he'll probably get reelected, but there are a number of guys like him who haven't played their cards as well. Now, here's the problem for the Democrats, and it actually is a real problem for the Democrats. They're going to be like the dog that caught the car. So they take the House of Representatives. They're probably not going to take the Senate. Do they try to impeach the president? Do they give in to that? If they give in to that, they are probably going to see the president win re-election in 2020. They will. They will mobilize Republicans against the Democrats, just like the Demo the Republicans mobilized Democrats in 98 uh, with, with Bill Clinton. And if they don't impeach Donald Trump, do they mobilize radical leftists to come after them in primaries? I suspect they will, and it's going to be glorious to watch in 2020 as all the Democratic Party candidates run far to the left of Donald Trump and start saying something you're about to start hearing. It's 40 after the hour. I'm Eric Erickson, and yeah, there's some rain in the area. It's, it's nothing is nothing is bad at this point. So I'm closing out the radar app, and I am moving on because I got to. Well, you know what? I, I'm I'm going to deviate from the topics I was going to go for. I'm actually sitting here texting back and forth with my buddy Joe uh, from Red State, and he, he, he occasionally trade each other tweets and I, I I gotta tell you it just it reminds me about what a garbage platform Twitter is uh, Joe is not a garbage person he's listening right now so I I can say that about him but Twitter is such a garbage platform you know I, I've gone through and I've deleted all of my tweets and I've now got this program set up so every week it goes through and deletes everything a week old and largely it's because I've seen so many people now go through and take decade old tweets out of context I've been on Twitter for more than a decade now and people will go through, they'll they'll take something you tweeted a decade ago, take it out of context, uh, 
uh, and blow it up into scandal. And it's just not worth my time having to go through and explain, oh, well, you left out these other tweets. And this was what I was talking about. You see so many people now have their careers left, right and center ruined because of old tweets that are uh, doctored or taken out of context. It's just not worth my time. And I'm sure Media Matters or some left wing hit group already is is cataloging and archiving my tweets anyway. So why do I need to keep the archive? Make them do the work. But, you know, let me give you an idea of just Twitter's problem. Now, full disclosure, you should know before I get into this, that I am a shareholder of Facebook. I got into Facebook on the first day. I actually called my broker and said, I want to buy Facebook. It had just come out like $30 a share. And even though it it has tanked in the last couple of weeks, it's still I've made money on Facebook. I also own shares in Apple. Those are actually the only two stocks I know that I own. I have a financial guy who buys and sells stocks for me. Hi, Jonathan. And he he makes me money and I don't worry about it. And I know there are some bank stocks in there, but I want to I want to disclose that I'm going to talk about a company that specifically I don't own stock in. And I specifically have told everyone I don't ever want to buy stock in this company. I think Twitter is a garbage company. There is that story in the Bible where Jesus cast the demons out of the possessed men, man, men, uh, depends on which book of the Bible you read. There's a reason for that. Nonetheless, uh, you know the story. He, he cast the demons out and he places the demons, tells them they can go into a herd of pigs and the pigs run down a hill and they all drown. What the Bible leaves out, because it wasn't relevant to the story at the time, what the Bible leaves out is that after the demons left the drowned pigs, they all got Twitter accounts. It is a garbage platform run by garbage people. Um, it, it, the the company management at Twitter, they're all a bunch of progressive ne'er-do-wells who live in San Francisco, surrounded by the poop on the streets. It's what they know. They're in their bubble. Let me tell you Twitter's core flaw and why you probably should not buy stock in this company. It is relevant. I got some real-world data to share with you. <laughs> Charlie just tweeted, uh, texted me. Jesus said, don't buy Twitter stock. Yeah, that's that's not in the Bible. It may be in the Apocrypha. Nonetheless, so here's the actual real world problem with Twitter. We did the resurgent gathering uh, the first weekend in August. Uh, my buddy PJ here in Atlanta did some effective targeting for us on uh, Facebook and on Instagram. We didn't generate a ton of clicks or registrations, but we, we definitely generated some. We spent $100 on Twitter, and we were really good with our targeting on Twitter. Really good. I mean, we found the people who are conservatives in Texas who love Ted Cruz and Greg Abbott. Um, who They participate in conferences. They interact with conference accounts. So you can get very precise in your demographic targeting on Twitter. I mean, we found the people who should do it. We spent $100 in a week. We got exactly zero clicks. Not just zero registration, zero clicks. We had a lot of clicks on Facebook and Instagram with the same targeting profile, but we didn't on Twitter. And this is consistent across the board. And I hear this from people who do micro-targeting for advertising for a living. Twitter is a horrible platform for advertising. And so all of the problems you're hearing about with Twitter right now, about Twitter's inability to get rid of the trolls, Twitter's policies on banning and blocking and shadow banning and what they're doing to conservatives and treatment of conservatives and on and on and on, is all overshadowing the fact that Twitter is having a hard time selling itself as an advertising vehicle. Now, it's tried to come up with collaborative deals for TV and whatnot. You know, a lot of these companies were out there. And they're, ooh, new, shiny. Let's let's go do something with them. And they're not seeing a return on their investment either. 
So the real problem with Twitter is not the trolls, it's not the harassment, it's it's not the social justice warriors. Those are all problems. The real problem with Twitter is how is this thing ever going to make money? I don't know that it is. And now because of all the harassment and whatnot, people are walking away from the platform. There's your problem with Twitter. It's a financial problem based on ad sales and click-throughs. And it's not just me. You could say, well, Erickson, it was just you. Nobody wanted to go to your stinking conference anyway. That's fine. I found out today, actually, we had more people showed up than I thought. Nonetheless, that's a, that's a fair argument that we screwed up. But it's not just me. It is consistent across people who advertise on social media platforms that Twitter is a terrible place for advertising. And these sites are built, whether you want to believe it or not, you're, the, you're Facebook's product. They're selling you to advertisers. That's how they're making money. They're matching you with an advertiser who they think you will like their products and want to buy them. And the advertiser is happy because they have such a huge captured audience. Twitter isn't able to do that. And because they're not able to do that, how long can they actually survive? And they're a garbage platform to begin with. They it absolutely, and I'm seeing, I see this myself. One reason I've tried to step back away from Twitter more and more is it brings out the worst in so many people. Uh, it has in the past, myself included. It is a terrible place to be. It is just not good for your soul. And yet so many of us, I would love to interact with you guys on social media. I'd love to interact with you on a daily basis on Twitter. But we got to come up with a way to do that without all the, the nastiness out on Twitter. There's so much of it. I hate to use the platform these days. It is 54 after the hour. Eric Erickson here. The phone number 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. CNN is at it again. There's more polling out that if the Republicans should not, they shouldn't confirm Brett Kavanaugh because he's the most unpopular nominee for the Supreme Court since Robert Bork. How many people actually even know who Brett Kavanaugh is? Seriously. Most people don't. Only about a third of people say he absolutely should be confirmed. And you've got Democrats out there saying, see, see, Republicans, you shouldn't do this. Here's the problem. If you've listened to the show for the last two hours, you've gotten it. The Senate's not in play. Brett Kavanaugh is not a Senate problem. He's a House problem. And the Republicans don't care because they will gladly lose the House of Representatives and secure a lifetime appointment for Brett Kavanaugh. All of these stories are designed in some way, shape, or form to try to scare Republicans into not putting Kavanaugh on the court. It's not going to work. They're going to put him on the court. And they're going to put him on the court, by and large, because even if they lose the House, they want to secure a generation with the Supreme Court. Now, you, you know, God has his sense of humor. He has a way of, of throwing people for a loop. He, he, he Events change things. Something could happen to one of the conservatives on the court. There could be a Democrat president. You don't know. There could be a, a, a loss of a Supreme Court seat for the left in the next two years if the Republicans keep the Senate. You got some really old members of the court there. But this whole idea that the Republicans should be persuaded not to do Kavanaugh because it's politically unpopular— is it going to save the seat for the left? If anything, Kavanaugh, if, if the president had to pick someone other than Kavanaugh, he would go further to the right than Kavanaugh. 
I mean, Kavanaugh is sufficiently conservative. Every conservative should be happy. I, I, he wasn't my first choice, but he was definitely in the top three, and he'll be good. But we're going to hear more of these stories. You know, the, the Kavanaugh hearings are going to start up September 4th, and there's going to be a steady drip, drip, drip. There's going to be this, we need more information, we need more information. I got to tell you, the Democrats so botched this. To come out before Kavanaugh was even nominated and say, we're not going to support whoever the president nominates. And then after he's nominated to come out and say, we're not going to support this guy. We don't need to know about him. We're going to vote against him. And now to come out and say, but wait, but wait, we need more information on this guy. Really makes it easy for Republicans to say, uh, no, you've already said you're not going to vote for him. You're just trying to delay. And that's what the Democrats are doing. And it's not going to work. This guy's going to be on the Supreme Court before the court reconvenes in October in time for the Jack Phillips case.